Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 to 11, and chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. That also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing fully, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and the harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward after my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. I have seen the burden God had, has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in his famous song, Imagine, uh, John Lennon says this famously, Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Now he wrote those words in 1971. What's interesting to me is 50 years later, uh, they still really resonate. Uh, And the reason why they resonate is because that is actually an an ancient postulation. What he's describing is an ancient longing, pursuing a life that's unaccountable to something greater or a life that is void of concerns about the transcendent. That whole idea was certainly not new with Lenin. In many ways, Lenin was merely uh, restating the book of Ecclesiastes. Imagine if there was no meaning, no end goal of all things beyond what we could make for ourselves in the here and now. This is essentially what the uh, philosopher of Ecclesiastes is considering. Uh, In the words of the teacher in Ecclesiastes, we often only consider that which is done under the heavens during the few days of our lives. Imagine. Now, if there was any pursuit in life that most often carries with it a desire to live for today, in the words of Lenin, uh, if, it's any, if there's any des- uh, pursuit that we possess that really focuses our attention to that which happens under the sun, 
the pursuit of pleasure would be it. Now, if you were here last week, you know that we started a new series called The Longing, which is a look at the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, And in it, throughout the series, we will be considering a variety of different pursuits. But today, what we're going to look at is how often we pursue pleasure for meaning. Some, for some, this pursuit of uh, pleasure is their actual purpose in life. For some, maximizing pleasure, pleasure and minimizing pain and suffering is the defining mark of life. And again, this, this might sound like a more modern pursuit, but as the teacher of Ecclesiastes has told us, there's nothing new that is under the sun, including this pursuit of pleasure. So let's consider the ancient wisdom about pleasure to see how there might be a modern opportunity to, to discover true meaning and identity and truth. And so let's consider uh, that pursuit by considering first the pursuit of pleasure, the limits of pleasure, and then finally the transcendence of pleasure. Right, so first, the pursuits of pleasure. Uh, look at how this passage begins, if you have it there in front of you. Verse 2 says this. The teacher says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. Now that's interesting to me. He starts off this passage by saying, now I will test pleasure, which means that there were things that he had pursued previously. And so now he's turning his attention to pleasure. Now, what was it that he had pursued previously? Well, back in verse 11 of chapter one, he said this. He said, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom. And as a result, he concludes, all of them were meaningless, a chasing after the wind. In other words, the teacher is saying he went to pursue truth. He sought to know all that could be known, to learn about all that could be learned about. And he achieved all that he could achieve through the mind and study and reason and wisdom. But in the end, because that pursuit was meaningless, he's now decided to turn toward pleasure instead. And that's fascinating to me. Because while that might not be the only reason to pursue pleasure, that is certainly one of them, isn't it? Right? When life becomes meaningless or seems to be meaningless, why not then make life about pleasure? If you don't have something that you are looking to into the future that transcends the now, then why not make the now as pleasurable as possible? And so for him, he built himself houses and vineyards and gardens that were so vast that he enslaved people to work the land. He amassed great sums of wealth, and he used that wealth to entertain himself with singers and a harem, which, to be clear, speaks of sexual exploitation. He denied himself nothing, verse 10 tells us. All right, so this guy had limitless houses, limitless wine, limitless entertainment, limitless sex. This guy had everything. He had access to everything that he thought was going to bring him life, his life pleasure. Now, the decadence sounds extreme, doesn't it, as you hear about that? And as a result, we might assume then that we can disassociate from the kinds of pursuits of pleasure that he had. Meaning, since most of us do not have access to limitless houses, limitless wine and entertainment and sex, we might look at him condemningly and saying, oh, this guy was a man of extreme excess. But to do so would be to miss the wisdom that's being communicated through this debaucherous life. I mean, because what is the root cause of this decadence? 
of the teacher? Well, it was that he searched for meaning and purpose, didn't find it, and so he pursued pleasures instead. And while we might not have the resources to, uh, to keep from denying ourselves nothing, maybe some of us do, I don't know, but most of us don't have those kinds of resources, we do still have the same problem, which is that, if, that we cannot find meaning and purpose, pleasure will become a substitute, whatever that pleasure might look like. Uh, I don't know about you, but this season has been one of the hardest for me to get in shape. Again, COVID has been brutal. Anybody else know what I'm saying? I think you know what I'm saying. Uh Uh-huh. And while I'm an extremely productive and like get things done kind of guy, I have really struggled uh, in this season to motivate myself to get into shape. It's been, it's been so strange and weird. It's, um, but here's the paradox for me when I think about what it takes for me to get in shape. I find that maybe like many of you, I do find a lot of pleasure in food, especially desserts. Mm, a good cake. Glory to God. But when I get myself into the headspace of getting into shape... It's amazing how easy it then becomes for me to work out and eat well, to deny myself the desserts. When I'm in the right headspace, it's relatively easy to resist the temptation. Why? Because in some sense, I have a greater purpose in which I'm putting my energy, right? That purpose being to get into shape. But right now, when getting in shape is hard, right? And that bigger purpose is not as easily attainable, right? The gyms are closed, it's been really cold outside, and so I don't want to go running, and I know those are both terrible excuses, but whatever, they're my excuses. It has become much harder to deny the pleasures of the dessert because the greater purpose is not being prioritized. So when we lose the greater sense of purpose, pleasure will become a bit of a pursuit. Now, I know that that example is a fairly innocuous one, It's one that's probably common to all of us. But there are some very consequential parallels to other kinds of pursuits of pleasure. I mean, think about it. Think about substance abuse. There is always, almost always, something else going on when we abuse substances. Right? Drunkenness, for many, is not the sole end goal. Drunkenness is often a means of wanting to control one's feelings or it's a way to distract from the mundaneness of life or to forget painful experiences. It's a loss of an orienting purpose. Sex is the same way. I mean, think about what happens with sexual promiscuity. There is almost always something else going on just beyond, or just, uh, that's going on beyond just a desire for sex. Right, for some people, there is a complete loss of self-worth and sex becomes a way of feeling validated or accepted or desired. For others, there's a need to control and so the pursuit of sex becomes something to conquer or to maybe put it more precisely, someone to conquer. I mean, why is that? Well, it's a loss of purpose beyond the immediate pleasures that can be attained. Pleasure is rarely a pursuit unto itself, but rather an attempt at filling the longing for a lack of greater purpose or meaning or truth. I mean, this is essentially what happened even in the Garden of Eden all the way back, isn't it? I mean, hear the way. Let me read to you the way Adam and Eve fall. You can hear this problem all the way back at the beginning. Hear the dilemma in uh, Genesis 3, 26. It says this, When Eve 
saw the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to her, to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Do you hear, even in the ways that it's described, that desire for pleasure? I mean, Adam and Eve lost sight of their greater purpose, which was trusting and obeying their creator. And as a result, they allowed the temporary pleasure of the fruit to take over because it seemed to provide them what they desired, which was wisdom. But in the end, it ended up being their undoing. And ever since, it's been our undoing as well. So I say all of this just to say, do not read the words of the teacher dismissively because they seem to be debaucherous and excessive. These are words, words that reverberate across time and amongst all people. We all lay victim to the pursuits of pleasure when our sense of broader meaning begins to waver. But inevitably, when pleasure is used as a means of purpose, we will inevitably experience the limits of that pleasure. Look at verse 11, if you have it there. After listing off all the pleasures that he pursued, it says this, He says, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Interesting. That the pursuits of pleasure cannot give us what we seek in that pleasure. Food and substances and sex and all kinds of other pleasures and comforts will not provide the meaning that we hope that they will. I mean, the teacher knew this. This is ancient wisdom, but it's also something we should be very conscious of now because it seems like that might be a self-evident truth. But experientially, so often that's just not the case. So often we might know that pleasure won't fulfill, and yet, even though we might know that, we still pursue it as though it will. Maybe you've heard of the philosophy of life that's called hedonism. Hedonism is a very, very relevant philosophical ideology today. Hedonism, in in essence, is concerned about maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. It is the pursuit of pleasure. But hedonism is an extraordinarily limited philosophy because there is no way to pursue pleasure And time and time again, this has proven to be true, there's no way to pursue pleasure without severe fallout for both you and for those that are around you. Because there are serious limitations to pleasure. Namely, the pursuits of physical pleasures, they just cannot be sustained without a greater and greater intensity of that pleasure to meet the previously experienced high that they once created. And we know this scientifically and physiologically now. We know this to be true about all different kinds of addictions in particular. Addictions that usually start off as simple pleasures. We know, scientifically, that in the brain there is a chemical called dopamine. It's the pleasure chemical that creates the feelings of pleasure and that motivates you to repeat the actions in order to get that same hit again that same sense of euphoria. But we also know that as one repeats that action, your body begins to build up a bit of a tolerance. And it does not release as much dopamine, which means then you need to uh, pursue more extreme versions of that action in order to receive the same feeling of euphoria. This is how addictions work. 
And this is why they start off as seemingly harmless physical pleasures and then eventually spiral out of control for people. Now, we know that to be the science behind it, but that is, that is the science behind what the Bible has always said to be true about the limits of pleasure. That in pleasure, even at its best, verse 11 tells us that nothing is gained because the very thing that makes it pleasurable dissipates and demands more of us the next time, only again to give nothing beyond a moment of pleasure. And think about pleasures. Food and substances and sexual encounters are literally only good for a moment. Yet we endlessly crave that moment. Plus, we also need to come to grips with the fact, as I was reflecting on this passage, we need to come to grips with the fact that as a society, we are actually far more like the teacher when it comes to our access to endless pleasures. And the reason why I say that is in our society, even the poorest among us have access to pleasure that most in human history have not had access to. I mean, think about it. We might read about this decadence dismissively, but my goodness, that would really require some cognitive dissidence on our part because just consider the types of things that he describes here. With food, I mean, I could go to the bodega right now and for 50 cents get something that would give me an incredible dessert fix, couldn't I? It's immediate food pleasure. And to put it into context, it's an immediate food pleasure that most in human history and many around the world cannot access. And yet I can access it for 50 cents right now if I want to. Right? Decadence is the norm, especially when it comes to food which is why we're one of the most obese nations in the world, the most unhealthy nations in the world. Sex, consider sex. It's probably the most obvious example of all of this. It might be the most extreme in some ways, but it, it presents the argument, I think, well. I mean, think about sexual attitudes. You know, we're one of the most permissive sexual societies on the planet, and certainly over the course of human history, which is why... It has been, for us, a continual issue, even now, with controlling healthy and understanding healthy sexual boundaries. I mean, because we've really lost a sense of what sex is, as a result, few societies have been so unclear about how to define the morality, the boundaries, the tempering of sexual desire. And here's what's striking to me. The best that we can come up with with a standard, is consent in sex. Which, of course, is like the non-negotiable standard. But what a pathetically minimal standard for something so powerful as sex. And the reason why I say it, it's so powerful, because I don't care what anyone says, sex is always far more involved than just the pleasure itself that comes. You know, for, for, for some, sex includes this longing for approval and acceptance and validation and love, all of it's interwoven with the actual physical pleasure that might come. In addition, there are also power dynamics that are constantly at play that might legally fit the, the guidelines of consent and yet are still manipulative and exploitative. I mean, we know that sex and sexuality, they drive economic growth and they drive entire industries. Why? Because it's powerful. 
And for something so, that so intimately weaves together your body and your soul, there must be something greater than just consent to help us navigate the power of sex. Now, the Christian ethic of sex within marriage is not some prudish attempt at repressing sexual desire, but rather it's an acknowledgement that sex is so powerful that it should only be experienced within the confines of a deep commitment, a commitment that should reflect the vulnerability and the interwovenness of the act itself. So much of the new attitude towards sex and the pleasure that comes without commitment is fundamentally saying, I want you to provide me pleasure. I do not want to stay obligated to you. I need the door open to possibly leave when you no longer satisfy me. I mean, that is essentially what sex is without commitment. And one of the most obvious consequences, there's been many consequences of this. I think one of the most obvious consequences, though, is the ideology that drives the pornography industry. In all its forms, including sexually explicit content in more mainstream channels, what is that except, I want you to provide me pleasure, but I don't want to be obligated to you. And since pleasure is momentary and never fully satisfying, that pleasure will cease being enough and more extreme experiences will be pursued, which almost always leads to some form of exploitation. This is a bit of a side note, but just to say, it's astounding how often the pursuits of pleasure devolve very quickly into the exploitation of other people. It almost always happens. The reason being is that at some point, when our pleasure and pursuit of pleasure is paramount, we will use other people to meet those needs. And back to what I was, uh, we were saying before, in far too many cases, we assume with, uh, with sex that consent is a sufficient standard. But we've even come to grips as a society that even exploitation, if consented, is okay. How did we get to that place? That if someone agrees to be exploited, then it's okay that we experience pleasure from that exploitation. Again, what a pathetically minimal standard. Pleasure has its limits. The desire will never be satisfied, and in the end will almost always result in dehumanizing ourselves or dehumanizing others. The limits are severe when pursuits of pleasure become our meaning, our purpose, our attempts at finding our identity. But why then are we in this position? How do we get to a point where pleasures overwhelm us and where pleasures can even lead us to the exploitation of others? Well, it's because, finally, we've lost the transcendence of pleasure. Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 11. The teacher says this. He says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Interesting passage. Notice two things that are there. First, he made everything beautiful in its time. I think it's worth just pointing out there that pleasure, which is ultimately this description of that which is beautiful, pleasure, it's a creation of God. That God has created in his good design pleasure. Important just to pin that. But the second thing, what does it mean that he has set eternity in the human heart? What does that mean? One biblical commentator articulated it this way in explaining what the teacher is saying. 
The commentator said, the impulse of man shows that his innermost wants cannot be satisfied by that which is temporal. He is a being limited by time. But as to his innermost nature, he is related to eternity. Meaning this, that within us, there is a sense that there is far more than what is seen and experienced right now. It's built in us. We know there is more. Though we can't often define it, we all have that sense of beauty and pleasure. That they're not simply limited temporal experiences. And from the biblical perspective, the reason being is because pleasures are transcendent. They ought to be anyway. There are trans- there's a transcendence to the pleasure itself that pings the inner eternity in your spirit. Not because that pleasure can fulfill you, but because it points to the one who can. C.S. Lewis, in, his, uh, in The Weight of Glory, He's reflecting on this point about pleasure, and he makes a statement that stuck with me for years. Let me read this to you. This is how he understands it. That the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them. It was not in them. It only came through them, and what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, of good images, of what we desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the sense of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. What is he saying? He's saying that pleasure and beauty are not what we actually crave. They are the avenues through which we experience something greater, pointing us to something greater. And what is it that we all crave? Well, it is the beauty, the pleasure of the creator himself. Pleasure is a means of pointing us to the creator of that pleasure. Psalm 34 tells us to taste and see that the Lord is good. I love that language. Maybe because I love food. Taste and see that the Lord is good because it emphasizes exactly what we are talking about. There's a connection between that pleasure and being able to see the goodness of the creator of that pleasure. But how then do we go from seeing pleasure solely as an end to itself and instead to see it as this transcendent pathway to seeing the goodness of God? How does that occur? The answer is simple. Jesus. I mean, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the one who allows us to see God for who he is, the creator of the pleasure. Why? Because Jesus, he leaves the transcendence of heaven, and in the words of Lewis, he he leaves a country that we have not yet visited, and he steps into our temporal world. And he does so because we needed him to break the bonds that kept us from seeing only the pleasure and never the source of that pleasure. The strength of our bondage to pleasure is so great that it took Jesus Christ coming. And on the cross, he experiences the exact opposite of comforts and pleasure. Our obsession and perversion of pleasure required the death of the Son of God. This is how captive we've been to its power. 
But Christ, laying down his life, experiencing the consequences of the Father's displeasure, enables us to experience the pleasures of the Father, that we might taste and see that the Lord is good. And to use the examples of the teacher that we've already, we've already looked at, I mean, consider the pursuits of pleasure in food and in wine. If the pursuit is about the food and the wine, we will become obese, drunk, and will destroy our health. But when food and wine are an avenue to see the beauty of God in Christ, we are left worshiping him. And as a result, we learn restraint and we make wiser choices because even the food that we eat becomes an opportunity to glorify and worship him. I mean, think about the pursuits of um, pleasure in sex. If the pursuit is just about sex, we will become selfish and likely become exploitative. But when sex is an avenue to see the beauty of God in Christ, we will be left in worship as we remember his covenant-keeping, faithful commitment to us, which in turn will also make us more covenant-keeping and faithful. The pleasures of this world will leave you wanting and longing for more. They're designed that way. They're designed to leave us longing for more because that longing is not for the pleasure. That longing is for the creator of that pleasure, a creator who came to set you free from the bonds of the temporal so that you can see the eternal to which they point. So look to Christ and taste and see the goodness of God and allow every pleasure in life to not be about the pleasure, but may every pleasure in life be an opportunity for us to be pointed to him, to glorify him, to find our delight only and solely in him. When we do that, I trust that we will rightly see the pleasure and we'll see God in all new kinds of ways. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that because of the work of your son, we can come and we can taste and see that you are good. As we look on Jesus, we see the one who lays down his life for us we see the one who experiences the consequences of, your, uh, of the displeasure that you have for our sins so that we might experience the pleasure of being in relationship with you. God, I pray for all of us that pursue pleasures as a means unto themselves. And as a result, it's created all kinds of problems. God, would you break the bonds of those that are bound by that? And would you help us all see that the pleasure is not what we are longing for. It's actually you. And that it's through that pleasure that our eyes are fixed on you. Would every pleasure be an opportunity for us to see you in glorious new ways? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.